Well, great. Thank you so much for having us over <clears throat> from your, what I always say is uh, your older, uglier, bigger sister uh, from across the pond. It is an absolute pleasure uh, to come from Birmingham to Birmingham uh, and to meet with you and partner with you and enjoy uh, just getting to know you, but also letting you know how you can pray for us, but also for us to figure out and see how we can pray for you. Uh, and so I just want to say thank you uh, on behalf of, of the rest of us for the time that we've had here uh, uh, being blessed by you. It's my second trip here at Oak Mountain, and it's been a delight both times to get to know uh, some of you, and I look forward to um, getting to know many more of you over the years. Uh, I'm going to uh, preach from, from Daniel chapter 8. Uh, Tom made a huge mistake. He told me a time limit on the first service. He did not tell me a time limit on the second. Uh, so buckle up. We're in this together from now on. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read from the ESV. So if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app, uh, would you turn to Daniel chapter 8, uh, and I'm going to read that for us. Daniel chapter 8. At the end of it, I, actually, I forgot, your custom is to stand, so can I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word? At the end of it, I'm going to thank God for His Word. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. My vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground, came toward the horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth, and it trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, and it prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard in a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the, end, the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horns between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people, he will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Thanks be, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. sometimes explain to people in the US on the couple of opportunities that I've had to, to travel over and talk a little bit about our story and our journey about what life is like uh, in the other big ugly sister, that I, um, well, it is as though I am from the future a little bit. I don't mean this because I dress in <laughs> some futuristic way or I am some kind of Marty McFly wannabe. But I am traveling to you from a highly secular, pluralistic, post-Christian culture. Today, in our city, on the other side of the pond, just 2%, less than 2% of people will be worshiping in churches, an evangelical church where they will hear the gospel. Someone once wrote about the UK, Christianity is a bit like a bad dream the details of which you can't quite remember, but it's left you with a sense of unease that you want to be rid of. I think the U.S. is seeing something similar. It might be terrifying for me to say, but 
This might be something that approaches what might happen in your future. Pew Research says that the number of people describing themselves as having no religion in the U.S. has almost doubled in the last 15 years, from 16% in 2007 to 28% in 2021. And you yourselves will know that there is a generational gap occurring. You'll know folks who describe themselves as ex-evangelicals, people who have not returned to church, And the question starts to become, doesn't it, how do we respond to that? What do we do? And one of the things I want to say to you from the future, from your future maybe, is that there is a story of hope to share. There is a story of of church planting. We have stories to tell of people who have been converted to Christ from the most unlikely backgrounds. We're seeing people growing in their faith. We've seen churches being planted, preaching the gospel again. I mean, there is something happening that is a good story to tell. And maybe if I say, I'd like to preach to you from Daniel, you'd say, well, yeah, give us the stories from the first half of the book. We like the stories of lion's dens and the fiery furnace and the writing on the wall and these kinds of stories. We expect in those stories, well, those are are real stories of people triumphing in in the midst of opposition and persecution. Many of you will know of Daniel. He was part of the post exile generation of young people who were taken away from their homeland after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC and were waiting as they were taken to their new home in, in Babylon, waiting to return. What Daniel experienced in one generation is what we have experienced in in Western Europe over about three generations. Rapid secularization and a sudden saturation into an anti-God culture. But I just have this conviction that if we just look at the first stories of, of Daniel, we miss something that is deeply profound that is the purpose of this book. There is something in these later chapters that take us into the world of the upside down. We start to see behind the curtain of history. We get to peep into some of the majestic vision of what God is doing that go beyond projects and church planting programs and see the real spiritual power and force of God at work through history. And there are some profound lessons for us in those stories in those visions that provide real help, real comfort, and will address with real certainty what to do when we're facing rapid secularization. So two things I want us to see. First of all, we're going to focus on the vision, what Daniel sees. And then secondly, we'll think more about the, the significance of the vision. What does this vision mean for Daniel and for you and I today? Okay, so first of all, the vision. Now, in this part of the book, this is one of a a series of of four visions that Daniel will have, and they are visions of the future. And he has visions of four kingdoms, first of all in chapter 7. The visions uh, take the form of a style of writing we call the apocalyptic literature. You you only really see it in in Daniel and the book of Revelation. And it's a a style of writing that has uh, rules all of its own. And there's a theme to the visions that Daniel sees. He sees four great kingdoms 
in chapter 7, and it progresses through into chapter 8, and they are really a, a vision of the first four great global empires. I mean, we live in a time of global empires, whether it's Apple or Amazon or to contextualize for me, Queen Victoria. We live in a world of great global empires to some degree. The first one that you get to see is the reign of Babylon. That's the first great global empire. You can see on the map how huge it was. But then that vision that Daniel has is to see it replaced by a second empire that comes along. The second is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then that is replaced by the Greek Empire, and that is replaced in the end by the Roman Empire, about 65 AD. And in this vision that we're looking at in this chapter, Daniel is transported to a future, to a place called Susa, which is going to be the fortress city of that second empire, the the Medo-Persian Empire, one that comes after Babylon has been defeated. And he's there having a vision sitting next to a great canal. It's a canal that connects two rivers so they can pass river traffic between the two rivers. It's a huge thing. And what he sees, a very strange vision really, he has a vision, first of all, of this great ram, like sheep, male sheep, but a great ram that has coming out of it two horns. Now horns are significant in apocalyptic literature. The horns symbolize power. Okay, so if, if an animal's got great horns, you know it's, it's powerful, or whatever it symbolizes is powerful. When Daniel looks and he sees this ram that has two horns, he sees that it's mighty and powerful and able to do whatever it wants to do, and it just goes on a killing spree. It goes from place to place, destroying everything in front of it, and there's, there's no force out there that can, that can stop it, it seems. Now, I should tell you, <laughs> when I arrived here on Monday, I, I went up to the, the rental desk and I rented the cheapest vehicle. This is what I always do, cheap, just rent the cheapest vehicle that, that, that they have in the rental place. And do you know what they gave me? They gave me a, a four-door Dodge Ram Semi. Okay, I think you call them semis, okay? It was like, welcome to Alabama. <laughs> Here's your truck. <laughs> and I was thinking, this is great. This is what I need to get around in, in Alabama. Now, we just do not have vehicles of that size in the UK. I mean, most of us don't have houses of that size in the UK. I was thinking, this is great getting this truck, but where's my ladder to climb in? You know, how do, how do I get into this thing? So you can imagine, Daniel sees this powerful ram blasting down, round, wherever it goes. What he's really seeing is the first great global empire, the second great global empire after Babylon. What he sees in verse 4, one of the horns grows. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. Did as it pleased and became great. Not good, just all-powerful. And in the interpretation of the vision in verse 20, we're told this is the Medo-Persian Empire. First of all, the empire was dominated by the Medes. They're more powerful under, I think, King Darius. You see him as a Mede. But it ends up it's the Persians. It's the second horn that grows out that is the more powerful. Cyrus, who's Persian. Some people have even made a link with 
saying there was a symbol in Persia, a symbol of their, their nation was the ram. But this ram is aggressive and all-conquering. It is a global power. Do you know, if you, if you lived in those days and you saw what was going on in the Medo-Persian Empire, you just think to yourself, well, this is the first time we've seen one boot that is going to oppress everyone. This is the one ring that will rule them all. We say, never miss a chance to remind everyone Tolkien was from my city, from Birmingham. He's a Brummie. You can ask me about that later. <laughs> one nation that will rule the world. But then Daniel sees another animal. It's another global power that is raised up. This time symbolized as a goat called the goat of goats, actually. And he has a single horn, and he is angry. And he flies at the ram. It's almost like he, he doesn't even need his legs. He flies at the ram and defeats it. Verse 21 tells us this is the Greek empire. And under Alexander the Great, about 332 BC, the Greek empire was the great dominant world power. Daniel sees it long before it happens, centuries before, a couple of centuries before it happens. Daniel sees the goat attack the ram, and the ram's horns are completely broken. It's saying that, listen, their power is completely gone. This unstoppable beast has been stopped, and it lies completely humiliated, trampled. There is, there is no one who can rescue it. But then something very strange happens in verse 8. At the height of its power of this goat, the horn of this great super goat, this global superpower, is snapped off. And four smaller horns grow up in its place. These four small empires. Now, Daniel doesn't see who does the breaking. I think it becomes clear maybe by the end of the passage that it's God who does the breaking. But what's fascinating is... The Greek Empire, we know from history, the Greek Empire was divided into four. Macedonia, Thrace, Egypt, and Syria. And the vision that Daniel then sees from verse 9 is really only concerned with the fourth of those horns. It's the small horn rising up, stretching out from the southeast into what he describes as the beautiful land that had once been Daniel's homeland, by the way, is describing Israel, the place where God dwells, the place of God's covenant people. And we know that a man came from the Seleucid Empire in, in Syria, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. His name, second name, means something like the manifestation of God, and he was the most brutal oppressor of God's people. He was evil and cruel. He had a particular vengeance against Judaism. And it said he killed 40,000 people in Jerusalem across three days. It was the only religion he tried to wipe out. And the people living in that time experience the darkest day that the people have ever really experienced. It's only replaced in World War II when the Holocaust is, happens. The Maccabean uprising that rebels against Antiochus Epiphanes is the thing that's still celebrated today at Hanukkah. But notice in verse 13 the description of what happens on that day. The daily sacrifices, so 
people would go into the temple and, and there would be a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice. They are completely unable to worship God in that place. And truth is described as being thrown to the ground. Antiochus Epiphanes would destroy any of the copies of the Torah that he could find. The rebellion, the transgression that causes the great dishonor of worship of God or the surrender of the sanctuary so that God can't be worshipped. you know what Antiochus Epiphanes does? He sets up an alternative form of worship in their, in their temple in Jerusalem so they can worship Zeus there. There's absolute sacrilege. The trampling of God's people so that no one is left to worship God. And you see something at the center of all of that that is just deeply satanic. It is opposed to the worship of God. It is designed. It's not so much just the identity of the people of God is being lost or, or that they're being changed or challenged. It is a fundamental and aggressive attack on the worship of God. And the angel who's speaking with Daniel says, how long? How long will this happen for? And the answer you get in verse 14, 2,300 days or about six years and four months. Some people have made a link, said, well, that's interesting. That's about how long Antiochus Epiphanes reigns for. Could just be that the number is more symbolic to make the point that the day of God's, the day of the people's suffering will come to an end. There is an end when when actually God will be worshipped again. You might think, well, is he just making up all this stuff about Antiochus Epiphanes? We don't normally listen to this stuff on a Sunday morning. I want you to know that a number of liberal scholars have made the point that, well, Daniel was clearly written in a very late time because the parallels to Antiochus Epiphanes are are too clear. This must have been written by someone much later. And of course, we don't believe that. We know it's the words of Daniel and his vision that he has much earlier. But having had this awful, awful vision, Daniel is weighing up everything he's seen. He's trying to understand it, and he's visited by this angel. And the angel Gabriel is instructed to speak to to Daniel. And he's instructed by another voice, another voice of one calling in the background. Daniel hears the voice of one, maybe even greater than Gabriel. And the angel says, told, I will give you the meaning of the vision that explains the end. I don't think it's talking about the end of time, but the final events that lead to the end of the Old Testament temple age. And in truth, what Daniel sees in his vision is truly awful. It's horrific. He's hoping to see Israel restored and the fortunes changed. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, many of you know, there was some partial return. There was a rebuilding of the temple. But what Daniel sees is sad and desperate. So we've got to ask the question, why does he see it? What's the vision all about? What significance does it have then and now to us? I think there are a number of things. Let, let's take, let me take you through them. The first thing, significantly, is that history has a path, a trajectory. And even though God's hand might be somewhat unseen through history, he is here. At work, through these events, he knows the end from the beginning. He has not forgotten. He has not abandoned. He has not left things just roll out of control. But what that means, the light relativizes human power. It means that our human politicking is more limited than we might think. 
It's a reminder that political eras, no matter how bad they might seem, they never last forever. And the reason for showing you the maps is because at the time when these empires were emerging, whether it's Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greek, Roman empires, people started to believe that through these world empires, well, the whole notion of world empire at that time was, was new. And people thought, well, if there's one ring to rule them all, there's one empire that's going to reign every, over everything, will there ever be anything different? This is the end of history that we're living through. And it's a reminder in Daniel 8 that that is not true. I think that is a profound reminder for us. We live in a political age, don't we? People seem far more interested when talking to me in my city back home, far more interested in talking to me about my politics than about my God. We live in a political age. We're told it's what we do, and it's our activism that really matters. That's the thing that changes the world. It's not our, our beliefs or what we worship that matters. They're privatized. They're relativized. And part of what fuels that politics is the belief that it's us. It's us humans who are in control of everything. And so we wrestle and we fight and we argue and we war like it's all at stake because we think that the future rests in the hands of those who win. In the language of Daniel, I guess we live in an age of these little horns being raised up all the time. And as Christians, maybe we're suckered by it. Maybe we're, we absorb that and think, yeah, that's, well, that's right. That's absolutely right. We watch the news and we're terrified by Putin or Xi Jinping or some other political person raised up. And we're terrified by it. Maybe it's not Politicians, it's Elon Musk or Bill Gates or global corporations or Facebook or their AI or, or it's the ideologies, the isms that have the fashion of the day. And for a time, they capture all attention and all the news stories about them. And it feels like, just like with these empires, it feels like the worldview that they're part of is totalizing. Like they will win and they will own all. They will own reality if they win. And that's how we end up thinking. And it's destabilizing for us. We live in a time of tremendous social upheaval where it feels like everything is always at stake all the time. Now, it's fascinating to notice that what concerns Daniel in this passage, it's not so much whether our sense of identity is under threat or merely our convenience is under threat. The thing that is so grievous in this chapter in in Daniel 8, the thing that's most distressing is that it is there to distract and downright prevent the worship of God. That's the appalling thing, the desecration of the temple. Now, into all of that, we're asking the question, well, what do we do about any of that? If that's our future, what do we do? Well, it's the apocalyptic literature that holds us and helps us in that because it enables us to see through the curtain, the fabric of reality, to see what is really profound, what is really real, what does the world look like from heaven's perspective? Because the temptation in the middle of history is for us to want to behave like the ram or the goat. Come on, let's charge, full blast. That's what I want to do. That's partly why we said, let's plant some churches. Let's get on and do something. Let's change the world. 
And we don't use sheer force to try and shape the culture because we think about Christ. He wasn't the ram who charged. He was the lamb who was slain. And I know, I know it's hard when you don't feel like you can see God at work through things. And the forces in the world out there, the forces that we operate, 2% of people going to church, feels like the forces are insurmountable. The worldview is totalizing. It's consuming everything. Have a look at verse 25. When they feel secure... This is Antiochus Epiphanes. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. We worship a God who knows the end from the beginning. And he not only knows the future, but he scripts it. Now I know, I know you all know that. But the issue for us isn't whether we know it, it's whether we believe it. Do we have a functional belief that secretly we need to be the ones who control our future? We need to be the ones to work, to steer history? Or is God in charge? The answer to that question, it really changes how you suffer when things are dark. Secondly, okay, so God is at work through history. History has a trajectory. But secondly, God deeply cares about the suffering of his people. You have to ask the question, Daniel 8, why does God not step in? It's a tough question. But it's an even tougher answer. And the reality is because the people in Daniel's time are experiencing something of the consequences of having walked away from God. I mean, they'd had prophets warning them, telling them to repent, and they'd, they'd denied them. They closed their ears. They killed some of the prophets. And this passage repeats they're experiencing a time of God's wrath. So how do we know that God really cares about them? It is strange. It is strange that of all the great world powers that come and go through that era, it is this little horn, this Antiochus Epiphanes, this footnote of history that most of us have never heard of most of the time, and yet this whole passage points towards him and the next passage as well. And it's like God focuses in on this period of history and says, no, 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 I want you to look and to stare. This is the history that matters to me because it is about my people and it is about their suffering. And I want you to know this is about my name and my glory. And he knows and he sees. God cares deeply about the suffering of his people. But thirdly, God enters into history. It's worth remembering, this is not the last time when Gabriel appears in the pages of Scripture. Maybe it's a surprise to see Gabriel turning up in in Daniel chapter 8. But do you remember Zechariah? Do you remember the father of John the Baptist? Do you remember what Zechariah sings when he finally has his tongue released? And we talk about it every Christmas, don't we? He sings about Jesus that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, those, wor- those words don't make it into many of the Christmas carols, do they? But do you see the significance from this of, of what he's seen and what he's heard and what the angels are telling them? It's an odd lyric, but it's about this powerful one, Jesus who rescues and redeems the people of God, about one who brings an end to the punishment 
the one who brings comfort, comfort to God's people. So they experience, yes, in this generation, something of God's displeasure at their sin, but now his wrath for sin is poured on Christ. And God does care. And he he cares enough more than just to warn, more than just to send messengers, more than just to send angels. But he himself enters into the world to turn things upside down. Gabriel's mission to Mary is not to announce devastation to the people again, but to announce redemption, redemption of God's people. Devastation is not Gabriel's last word in Scripture, because devastation is not God's last word in Scripture. And devastation is not what God speaks over us, his children, as the final word. It is redemption. Christ brings to us hope, peace, comfort, joy, the redemption of our souls. So whatever else we're experiencing in our culture today, and some of it, frankly, is down to our church. I'm talking about our context. Our church, failure to preach the gospel, failure to cling to the gospel, absolutely. But we are not experiencing God's wrath. He smiles on those who are cloaked in Christ because he smiles at his son and we are counted in him. But fourthly, maybe this is the hardest part of of this chapter. The fourth thing is the emotional impact of living through times of transition and darkness is hard. Look Look at Daniel in verse 27. I, Daniel, was was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And (laughs) by beyond understanding, I don't think he got to the end of it and went, oh, this is a very confusing vision about rams and goats, and what does it all mean? I think he knows full well what it all means. Its, Its message is clear. It's just overwhelmingly painful. The insight, the understanding of how this world works You get a taste of the presence of real evil when you know that it shouldn't be like this. When you've seen through the upside down, when you know that there's another world. It's horrific. I live in the city of the Peaky Blinders. (laughs) Come and look at what a post-Christian culture looks like. It's not easy. It's deeply painful. Or go to other parts of the world where you get to see your mission partners and see where the church is persecuted, where the cost of being a Christian is is felt every day. You don't get used to it. I experience a sort of reverse culture shock when I come here. I feel like I'm home. It's overwhelming. And I know many of you know that. The heartache I think we often feel is not It's not the inconvenience, it's not the the frustration that in in the culture I'm from, pastors are not respected and they are really not respected. (laughs) Or that the church isn't politically influential and it really is not. Who cares about 2% of the population? It is not politically influential. The thing that causes to grieve seeing people growing up in families where they've never had the opportunity to hear about Christ or growing up in families where maybe they have heard something about Christ but they've turned their back on him. They view Christianity as a bad dream. I don't remember the details. I know I don't like it. 
don't want to go back to it. You see the rejection of Christ, the hopelessness, the joylessness of life without Christ. It's very difficult living in a city where there are historic echoes all the time, reminders of a culture that was once far more Christianized, and you watch it all being dismantled and stripped from the inside out. It's heartbreaking to watch cultural disintegration or kind of cultural necrosis happening as a culture wanders from Christ. But the key reminder in Daniel 8 is we are not here as ones who control history. We are here to witness to Christ because he is the one who does control history. Because whatever heartbreak and despair Daniel felt, the dawn of hope came with Christ. The end he was being told about was not the end, it was the end of the temple age into a new dawn when Christ would be revealed. Because God is not done with his covenant people. Final thing, fifth thing. Okay, the response in the end is to keep going. So what does Daniel do with his whole vision? Verse 27, he gets up and he goes about the king's business. Okay, that's the life of the Christian, right? You spend some time with God's word, you listen to Christ, you sing your worship songs, you spend time in the presence of God's people, you grieve, but you recenter, you reorientate your life about, around him. And then when all is said and done, you get on and do the things that he has called you to do. Daniel, as far as I can tell, has more power and more influence than any of us will ever experience. I mean, at one point, he's second only, really, to the king of Babylon. And he knows what's going to happen to God's people. And yet, he's immensely powerful. He knows what's going to happen. And I find it absolutely astonishing that he does not make a seize, a lunge for power for himself. He accepts that which is above his pay grade. What belongs to the things of heaven belong to the things of heaven. So he gets up and he goes to do the king's business. What are the things that Christ calls you today? What are you called to, to tend to today? I know that you, like me, would be an excellent armchair president, or king, or prime minister, or boss over your corporation. We are very, very good at the theoretical solving of global problems with deeply superficial analysis. <laughs> I know it. I know it. We all read the papers or watch the news and figure out what we do and solve the problem. One of our favorite pastimes is putting the world to rights. I don't know whether you have that phrase. There isn't a problem we can't solve. Except, of course, that is not our business. That is not our calling. The role of God of the universe is already taken by the God of the universe. Our role is to cry out to him together now and to trust him that he knows the end from the beginning. Let me pray. Lord God, we praise and worship you because we are creatures and yet you are the creator God. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. We bow to you because 
we are weak and fallen and we confess that we are not in control of our lives, much as though it grieves us to admit it. And we rant and we rage about how the world is changing. Yet, Lord, help us not to give in to despair, but to trust you as the Lord of all creation to complete your mission. And somehow we ask you to direct our steps that we might be involved in the work of the Great Commission, the work that you have called us to do, and help us to trust you, to walk closely with you, and to complete the things that you've given us to do today. Amen.